This is the Plucked Chicken Podcast. All right, Pastor Russ, what I have in front of you is a transcript given on, you see the date up there, March 2nd, 2009. Now, that was a long time ago, and maybe uh, this pastor's views have changed. Maybe they have not. His name is David Platt. Now, uh, as everybody knows, I was not born Lutheran. I was not exposed to, to Lutheran doctrine until five years ago, four or five years ago. And and I realize in saying that, that you have no idea who these evangelical guys are. No, I certainly don't. Right. Okay. So David Platt. Okay. You're familiar with John MacArthur. Yes. Okay. I would put him in that category. Prominent uh, evangelical. Prominent evangelical, but solid. He's not your hip, trendy, cool guy, uh, you know, with the skinny jeans and the, the, the chain on the wallet, hip pastor with the shirt tail out, you know, that type. He is a solid evangelical pastor. He's got a number of books out. A lot of evangelicals talk about him. This was his sermon transcript, as I said, where he focused on the Lord's Supper. And I've highlighted some things that I wanted us to take a look at because what's interesting about him is he will use the exact same verses that, say, the the catechism refers to with baptism, but the way that he translates it or the way that they... Moves it in a different direction. Moves it in a totally different direction. I mean, this guy, not this guy, I'm not trying to throw him under the bus, but the, the Protestant evangelical belief about what are the sacraments they're just not going to go in that in that direction. Is it a, uh, probably a baby with a bathwater kind of issue with the Church of Rome, right? Explain anything, that. Well, anything that's uh, anything that smacks of Rome gets thrown out. Oh, no it's, doubt, right? So, so we see this evidence with their liturgy. We see right. evidence with the attitude toward the sacraments. Right. right. Is the fear of Rome, Romophobia, is that you're just giving up so? Much right, and and there's a lot to deplore in the Church of Rome, right? Uh, but here's the deal: um, you know, you take the attitude between Zwingli on the one hand and Luther uh-huh. on the other hand, and uh, for Zwingli, uh, the the issue uh, at stake was was really acting in an anti-Roman way. For Luther, the issue at stake was acting faithfully to Scripture. Now, if that happened to result in having Romanistic elements mm-hmm. left over, mm-hmm. he was fine with that. For Zwingli, if any Romanistic element was left over, it had to be purged automatically. Hence the radical reformer. Precisely. They didn't feel like Luther went far enough. You, you whitewash the walls, you get rid of all the images. Candles. Uh, if Rome says that baptism does something, you say baptism doesn't do anything. If Rome says Christ's body and blood are, are truly present, you know, uh, are the bread and wine, right. you say the opposite of it. Uh, it's this sort of hatred, I, I would say, or, or fear of a God, and I've talked about this in other uh, occasions, but a God whose fingernails get dirty. They don't like that. And, and all of the ritual, all of the aesthetics uh, are about a God whose fingernails are quite Clean. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. But yeah. wouldn't you say just um, regarding maybe, uh, I don't know if this is psychology or not, but it's like this reaction where we go to the opposite end, you know, maybe just using the example, you know, being from the South, you're a teetotaler. I mean, this is yet one of the other reasons why wine is not used in communion and grape juice is. Because 
people have abused the gift over on this side. So the reaction swings to the opposite side, and now we don't even go go near it. Yeah, I would say, I mean, just historically in the Reformation, I don't, I don't know about contemporary evangelicals, but they are clearly, to me, to my mind, heirs of the sort of radical reformers. Mm-hmm. You know, there was this, the, it was a reform of manners. That's what they were after. There were two simultaneous reform movements going on in Europe in the 1600s. One was a reform of theology, and the other was a reform of manners. So, for example, all you need to do is look at uh, Erasmus's Encomium uh, Moriae, his uh, In Praise of Folly, uh, where he, he pillories the manners of, of the people of 16th century Europe. Um, and so <clears throat> what you do, well, and there's a, that reform of manners included a reform of, of educational uh, establishments, a reform of thinking, looking for some clarity on thought. And so, you know, you, you grab for clear philosophy uh, as a way of purging theology. And, and this is exactly what Swingley does with the finitum non capax infiniti, that rule that the, the finite cannot possibly hold the, the infinite God. Therefore, they cannot be bread and, uh, the bread and wine cannot be the body and blood of Christ. On the altar. Right, because it's, it's cleaned up, clear theology mm-hmm. using well-known philosophical precepts. And then, but see, this is what I was saying the other day when you and I were talking, uh, when that word spiritually, now you spiritually ascend into the heavens during communion and dine with Christ or sup with Christ there. Because that's It's so not much, dirty. That's so much neater than... Yeah, absolutely. Dirty, absolutely. Yeah. So, so I wonder about this, this business about the, the drinking. Is that is that simply extremism, or is it is it an attempt at reform of, of manners? Okay, okay, all right, fair enough. But let me give you another example about this extremism. What about, uh, say, stewardship of the earth? Because there are some people who worship Gaia, right? And when they worship Mother Earth, so then you've got this whole other, you know, we move away from that completely, and we don't even talk about taking care of that which God has made because people have abused it. Abused it, right. And I'm wondering if the evangelicals, they move to the other side, staying away, they stiff arm uh, Rome, Romophobia. My question is why that persists. I don't know that. That's a great question. You know, uh, you can see why it would have been the case in the 1600s. Mm-hmm. But but somehow or other, that just got into the blood, didn't it? It and did. It's, and, it's, and it's persisted. And Rome is always the boogeyman. Correct. The thing that you're always reacting against. Correct. And, of course, uh, we find this in the evangelical Lutheran church as well. Would you say that the radical reformers, um, Karlstadt? Karlstadt, Münzer... Um, the Zwickau prophets. Yes. So Zwingli, I'm, I'm not sure if I'd throw Zwingli in the radicals among the radicals necessarily. Okay. He starts off fairly mainstream and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, he dies on the battlefield ultimately. Right. Uh, which Luther would have disapproved of and did, did in fact disapprove of. Well, he said something about God struck him down. I mean, it right. was almost like a judgment of, of God on him. Right. His radicalism isn't the same as that of Karlstadt and uh, and Münzer and others. Right? Mm-hmm. So he's not, Zwingli is not uh, swallowing the Holy Spirit feathers and all. Yes. It's like out prophet. But he does have a canon outside of the canon. And this is Luther's problem with him. For the, for the Zwickau prophets, the canon outside of the canon was whatever they thought the Holy Spirit was telling them to do. Uh, for, for Zwingli, it was, I would argue, the reform of manners on the one hand and this philosophical uh, tidiness that he 
felt like theology had to to adhere to. I'm not sure if that gets us anywhere closer to the answer on, uh-huh. on, on why the evangelical evangelicals mm-hmm. uh, react like they do to baptism and, and the sacrament of the altar. But that's the genetics of it, at least. So let's say most people, they go into an evangelical church. They don't even care what the church believes about the sacraments. Most of it is really driven by the music, and we'll get into this in further podcasts about the music, but but Luther was one. I mean, this was fascinating for me when I first started to, to study the, the tenets of Lutheranism is to see how Luther put his finger on enthusiasm and how we're looking for this God within and how, you know, contemporary music today totally aids that. Almost where the sermon is an interruption in the people swaying back and forth with their eyes closed, uh, looking for the God within. And my point is, it seems that people are satisfied with looking for that God within, as opposed to a God coming to them extra nose outside of them through the sacraments. This is the inveterate situation of human beings, though, as, as we would recognize, it, mm-hmm. isn't it? That Adam and Eve's sin was to, to make themselves in their own moral compass, that they become like gods. Eat this fruit and you'll become like God. Right. Temptation. I think the tragedy of American evangelicalism is that it plays on the disease. It feeds the disease. It uses the disease as its launching pad. And then it feeds it. And what's so horrible about that is there is no devout evangelical who would ever, they cannot see that. They, they think that they are right in line with what God wants them to do. Yet at the same time, they're not even believing what God has said. I mean, they believe a lot of things that God has said. Absolutely. You know, they believe a virgin birth. I think we have to acknowledge this. They believe Jonah got swallowed by a large fish. God created the world in six days. They believe this. They that, That Jesus walked on water, turned water into wine. I mean, but when it comes down to what the Bible says about baptism, they will not go there when it comes to what the Bible says about the Lord's Supper and what it actually provides you. They won't go there. So it's, it's really the delivery mechanism that, that is in question for them. Oh, in the fact that uh, God uses physical elements to yeah, bring about? Well, I mean, you must use something, right? I mean, they, they're believers in Christ. So God must have, God is somehow, the, the God who walked on water at one point in time is somehow still active in this world, apparently inside of them. I'm not sure. What it's all spiritually. About this, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, in an indiscernible way. But the, the, the divinely given delivery mechanism just doesn't uh, come into play. But is, is this all part of the neat and tidy uh, Christianity, right? So, yeah. so back there, Jesus used spit and, and clay. And when he was crucified, you know, no doubt had urine dripping down his leg and, and uh, but we can sort of look past that or, or say that happened 2,000 years ago and now we've got this, you know, whitewashed walls, uh, mm. no images, uh-huh. and all of this comes to us, as you say, spiritually. Yeah. Right. Some scare quote. In regard to this sermon that was given on the topic of uh, the Lord's Supper, I mean, this is an hour-long sermon, which in the evangelical world, I mean, I used to preach hour-long sermons. I know that absolutely blows most people away. But think about the fact of everything that you've got to do in regard to the Lord's Supper. I mean, there are so many things that you, as the person who is receiving the Lord's Supper, 
has to do because you're in the driver's seat. God is not in the driver's seat. Believers share in the work of Christ as they partake of the Lord's Supper. Jesus obviously shared this meal with his followers. In the context of 1 Corinthians 11 here, this is a letter written to the church, to the church of God in Corinth. Every time we see communion, breaking of bread, the verse at the top of your notes there that we didn't look at, Acts 2.42, this is what the early church devoted themselves to. The church devoted themselves to the apostles, teaching the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. All throughout the New Testament, the picture is the Lord's Supper being celebrated in the context of the body of Christ. The church, the covenant community of God, does this. In fact, look back one chapter to the left in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Look at verse 16. Listen to what Paul says there when he talks about the bread and the cup, the body and the blood. He says in verse 16, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Is the emphasis on the blood of Christ and the body of Christ as opposed to participation? See, this is what the evangelical does. They take the things that are in the minor position, they elevate those to the major, whereas the things that are in the major position, they dumb that down. You might circle. You saw it twice. Participation in verse 16. Mentioned twice. That word, koinonia, it's something we share together. It's something we have in common. We have in common. We're identified. Only followers of Christ identified with His body and His blood. That's what is symbolized in the fact that we do this only in the context of the church. Right. So the, so the question is, what is this part participating in, in, the, in the work of Christ? I mean, to me, the glaring statement here is believers share in the work of Christ as they partake of the Lord's Supper. Now, a Lutheran would look at that and, and hear it a certain way. How? A, a, a Lutheran would say, well, of course we share in, in Christ's work in this sense that it is given to us mm -hmm. as, as a benefit. Now, I'm not sure exactly what, you know, I haven't read enough of this here to see what where he's going, but uh, certainly he's not saying this is a continuation or a co-working with Christ. Is that what he's up to? I don't think he goes there. But okay. see, here's you know, here's what's amazing. Luther uses these words when he talks about in the uh, formula that we read yesterday together, where he talks about how they use our language, mm -hmm. like the difference between the crass sacramentarian versus the crafty sacramentarian. Correct, yeah. I would say this is the crafty sacramentarian right here. Explain what a sacramentarian is. You did this yesterday. So a sacramentarian is somebody, uh, it, it's sort of a strange word. A sacramentarian means the opposite of what it sounds like. Uh, a sacramentarian is somebody who denies the efficacy of the sacraments. The reason that is confusing is because you would normally see sacramentarian, you think that this is somebody who actually believes in the sacraments. Correct. But the sacramentarian is one who actually downplays it. Right or even right. denies it. Deny denies the efficacy. Okay. And sacraments become something else, and, and in fact, you know, I think there's a loathing of of the even the term sacrament among sacramentarians. Pastor Platt, he said, so believers share in the work of Christ as they partake in the Lord's Supper. Those who have trusted in Christ, who have trusted in Christ and His blood shed on the cross to cover their sins, whose lives are united with Christ as God, Savior and King, Lord of their lives. That's who shares in the Lord's Supper. Now he doesn't. He doesn't really elaborate on this sharing. So I think I understand what he's saying here now, and, and um, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, I think what he's saying 
is that when we participate in the sacrament of the altar, we receive, or, maybe he's not even saying receiving, that we already have trusted in what Christ has done, and so now we get to do this thing, which is partake of the Lord's Supper. Which is going to eventually, I think, take us back to the key thing for any sacramentarian, and that is the whole remembrance. It's up to you to remember, and this is where we're sharing. We're sharing in some sort of mental, exactly Mm -hmm. spiritual, there it is again, you know, between our ears type thing, rather than what is actually going into our mouth. So he actually trips on his own words. So it it is, in fact, and, and we would recognize this as well, it is, in fact, a sharing in the work of Christ. In other words, the work of Christ comes to us through the sacrament of the altar. And we also believe, teach, and confess with Scripture that only those may may receive it worthily who have faith in the words given and shed for you. So those those words are the operative words. What? Why am I going to the sacrament? Well, because Christ has died for me, and here he gives me his body and blood. He uses the sharing in the work of Christ, glossing over entirely precisely what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 16. So he says, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ, and is not that the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ. Lutherans, Scripture, Paul, can't get to benefiting from the work of Christ apart from the very reality of Christ's blood and Christ's body okay. as the bread and wine. So you take the one away, and what else do you have except for a twinkle of a memory? Right. And see, this is one of the things that always, when you talk about remembrance and you talk about a twinkle of a memory, what about the folks that are suffering with Alzheimer's? They can't remember. I mean, so so. And how perfectly do you have to remember? I mean, the bottom line. Look at the uh, uh, like the uh, this paragraph right down yeah. here where it says the Lord's Supper. We reflect on any and every area of disobedience in our lives. In the Lord's Supper, we reflect on any, every area of disobedience in our lives. I would think that is that is an awful undertaking, which on it quite honestly can't even be done. Any and Every area of disobedience in your life. I mean, what about sins of, of, of omission? And sins you're unaware of. You know, in all fairness, though, I would say that, that we must, as we approach the sacrament of the altar, reflect on our disobedience to God. Because the only reason that we take it is because of our disobedience. We need it because of our disobedience. But wouldn't you say that the Lord's Supper, for the faith that we've been given, we didn't generate this faith, it was given to us, wouldn't you say that the Lord's Supper actually is what God has given us to nourish that faith? Absolutely. It's not It's not a matter of, I see what you're saying, it's not a matter of us doing this obedient thing right. somehow or other. Right. What to say that I've already examined all my right. peccadilloes. Right, right, right. I recognize that I'm, I have been disobedient, so now I'm going to be obedient uh, by doing this uh, really easy work. Actually, it's an easy work, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Receiving the sacrament of the altar. If I can just do that as my act of obedience and not be a good dad, that's that's pretty. That's cheap grace. Okay, so in the second on the second page there, maybe this goes back to that sharing part in the the, the second full paragraph where he says here. Believers share in the work of Christ as they partake of the Lord's Supper. See, he just kind of mentions it. He doesn't really go into it, but now he's going to talk about unbelievers. Unbelievers who are there in the congregation, 
see the work of Christ as they watch the Lord's Supper? As believers share in the work of Christ as they partake of the Lord's Supper, unbelievers see the work of Christ as they watch the Lord's Supper. Now he's going on here because he, he's, he's, he's addressing this issue of should unbelievers partake of the Lord's Supper. Unbelievers shouldn't partake of the Lord's Supper. And why not? Because they don't uh, come to it with uh, seeking the forgiveness of sins, which is what God promises there. They don't believe that God forgives sins. Uh, they certainly don't believe that he forgives sins through the, through the, through the sacrament. But here, um, what, what is the issue? Is it, is it an obedience issue? Is it a, and and how, do they, how do unbelievers see the work of Christ as I don't they know. watch the Lord's Supper? I don't know. Paul, Paul is very clear about this in 1 Corinthians 11. This is 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Mm -hmm. There is a proclamation that occurs through the sacrament of the altar. But if the sacrament of the altar is merely a, a matter of obedience, mm -hmm. there is no proclamation of the Lord's death until he comes. Well, true. And what's even worse is you've got to do the act of obedience in baptism first before you are obedient in the Lord's Supper. It's amazing how all of these gifts are turned completely on their head. That the, that the gift nature is, is turned into a, an obligation. Think about that in terms of what God is like. Instead of being this generous, merciful God who loves to bestow mercy, now we make him out to be, or not we, you know, evangelicals will make him out to be this Baal deity that is always demanding more and more of your devotion, more and more of your money, more and more of your, you know, fill in the blank, your obedience. I, th I think that kind of attitude is... It's really sad uh, because, no doubt, uh, he is tapping into 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six here when he says, unbelievers see the work of Christ as they watch the Lord's Supper. Because Paul says clearly, for as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, right. you show forth the Lord's death until he come again. But this is to ignore words that come three verses earlier. For I received from the Lord. Exactly. Not, not I made a, an act of obedience toward the Lord. I received from the Lord. What I also handed on to you. Now, Paul uses a word here, paredoka. Uh, it's the give word. Mm. So, so Paul's passing this on to the uh, Corinthians is a gift, right? Not, a, not an ordinance or a, um, a command of trying to wring obedience uh, out, of, out of a person. Right. Uh, so that gift nature is even in Paul's words for how this is transmitted to us as Christians. But in Pastor Platt's defense... English does not pick that up. So we, we I mean, even though it says, uh, I receive, but you don't think of it in terms of gift. Right, what I delivered to you, I mean, you could deliver, what can you deliver? You can deliver all sorts of things. Sure. Including a command. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So, okay, but notice the next page there at the top. You're exactly right when it says, you know, his reference is 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine. Now watch this. In fact, you look at 1 Corinthians 11.29, there's a debate and a discussion about this verse. Anyone who eats and drinks, I, I just think this is as clear as it can possibly be. Anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord, right? That it's not symbolic, that it is the very body of the Lord, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now notice, this is what I underlined the next 
This is uh, Pastor Platt's response. There's a lot of people who believe that's a specific reference to the body of Christ, the church, that you don't eat this meal without recognizing the body of Christ around you, which is part of what Paul is addressing here in 1 Corinthians 11. And there's a lot of people who believe that's a specific reference to the body of Christ, the church, that you don't eat this meal without recognizing the body of Christ around you, which is part of what Paul is addressing here in 1 Corinthians 11. Have you ever heard that Paul is actually referring to the uh, without recognizing the body of the Lord instead of that, that gift that's being given to you in your mouth? That, oh, no, 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 that's not the body of the Lord. This, the corporate gathering, is the body of the Lord. Yes, this is a, a this is actually, uh, sadly, a, a road that uh, some of the liberal Lutherans go down. The liberals tend to uh, focus this word, the body, here, the body of the Lord, on the on the corporate uh, group of believers, and and there's 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 a little bit of justification for that, because uh, later on Paul talks about the body tosoma uh, as the body of of the church. So uh, in First Corinthians twelve twelve, for just as the body is one and the members are many, and there are many members of the body, so on and so forth. Okay, so we do have that kind of language here. But to me, the critical point is how is body being used in the context that Paul is, is talking about here? Right, because there's only one interpretation or one correct, I should say, interpretation. I mean, right. is he talking about the church body? Or the body of Christ. Right. right. So, you know, if you go back to verse 24, so 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four, when he had given thanks... Uh, that's Jesus. He'd given thanks. He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. This is my soma, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And there uh, in verse 26, he refers to the body as bread. And then in verse 27, he refers to the bread again, which is the body, uh, which we've talked about. And then comes to uh, verse 26. He's talking about bread and cup where it's, uh, he's already supplied this for us. It is bread and a cup, our body and blood. And then uh, we get down to verse 29. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body. What natural conclusion would the readers of this epistle have first arrived at in light of, of that concatenation of body bread language? Right. Except for that this is the body of Christ, that right. the bread is the body of Christ. To think that it's the body of, of Christ and that it's the corporate gathering. I mean, this is a major shifting of gears without pushing in the clutch at, to, to think like that. Right. And then to think, I mean, think about the uh, the punishment. Judgment upon themselves if I don't recognize that this is the, the corporate body of Christ. I don't know. It, to me, it sounds like it is trying to wiggle around. Exactly. Just so that we can get away. Well, in this case, get away from the negative side of not believing what Christ said about this supper. And it le- leads to sort of indiscriminate humanism. And, and in light of this, what, what exclusions can be made? If I walk into a church building and, and I say, oh, yeah, all these people are Christians, am I not recognizing the body of Christ? Right. Even, even, right. even if I'm an unbeliever. I'm saying, oh, yes, this is, this is most certainly the body of Christ. Right. Exactly. <laughs> So what judgment is to befall me there? The question, I think, is why Paul is so hung up on this recognition of the body of Christ. That 
Christ in the sacrament gives his body to eat and his blood to drink. Why? He gives it for the forgiveness of sins. If I take away the body, if I take away the blood, then I have not the forgiveness of sins because those are precisely the means that Jesus has determined to bring the forgiveness of sins to me. And this is the issue for Paul. It all, it all goes around the forgiveness of sins, doesn't it? Um, this is what the power of the gospel is. Uh, it's the power of salvation to everyone who believes. God, for Paul, is a God who forgives the sins of those whom he calls by the gospel. And for Paul, this, this has got to be this, this flat-out denial of the way that God wants to work toward me. And that's the issue for him. I would agree. And see, this this goes back to my point earlier in that the evangel- the American evangelical church, they have given up so much. For what? You know, so we can look for God within? Or, or you're talking about the forgiveness of sins. How does the American evangelical receive the forgiveness of sins? Well, I think, I, I think you've talked about this, and this actually opens up some really interesting vistas for me. Uh, you've mentioned to me in the past that the forgiveness of sins is really the sort of rear view mirror kind of thing. Totally. For the, for the American. It's, it's when did you get saved? Right. And for Lutherans, uh, we, uh, we live constantly in the flesh. Uh, the scripture teaches that we live constantly in the flesh. And so this is not a Lutheran theologumenon, uh, a Lutheran particularity. All you got to do is read uh, Romans chapter 7. The mm-hmm. good that I would, that do mm-hmm. I not do. And the, the, the good that I, uh, the evil that I would not, that do I do. This is the existential location of every Christian. And the American evangelical, as well as the Lutheran, you know, in a sense, I would argue that the American evangelical is more acutely exposed to this existential location than, than, than the Lutheran. The Lutheran sort of knows how to deal with it because they've been taught it from, from the very earliest days of their life right. that they can remember. But the American evangelical with forgiveness of sins in the rearview mirror and this constant striving to improve, mm-hmm. has to be acutely aware of Paul's words. Now, that acute awareness should drive them uh, with hunger and thirst to the sacrament of the forgiveness of sins given to us by the body and blood of Christ. Well, you're thinking logically. <laughs> right. And it doesn't work logically. Right. It drives them to despair. That's where it drives them. They've been taught their whole life that David was a man after God's own heart. And they are taught they then are to be that same person. And they will strive and strive and strive and strive. And when they realize they're not getting it, because it's not God's ordained means, they'll read more Bible. They'll pray more. They'll fast more. They'll go to church more. They'll sing more. They go af- they, they feel like, again, they're serving this Baal-like God who's not going to bless them or favor them or give them anything until they produce. It so is they're, an they're exhausting resting, way. They're, they're resting it from God, in a sense. Or you've got the other extreme of the guy who feels like, man, I'm doing it. It's the, it's the proud guy. It's the self-righteous guy who says... You know, I'm able to pull this off. I'm the, uh, let's see, I'm the promise keepers man. I'm the uh, Proverbs 31 woman. I'm raising my kids God's way. I'm doing all this. I'm budgeting my money the way that God wants me to budget the money. I am am doing it all. I've got all the T's crossed, all the the I's dotted. It's the schizophrenia. It's this uh, polarity 
uh, that one uh, moves in. Would you imagine that more, uh, that it's probably the case that more evangelicals than less tend to fall into that latter camp that you're talking about? The despair? No. The Oh, no doubt. The, the, the I'm getting it. I'm oh, absolutely. It. Absolutely. You're not going to reveal to anybody that, that you're in despair because then what what is your other evangelical friend going to tell you to do? Well, it's because you're not praying enough. You know, you're not reading your Bible enough. They're, they're not going to send you on to Christ's work and what he's done for you. They're going to send you back on your work. And it, it, is a, it is a terrible cycle in which you realize you just don't, you just don't tell anybody. Which is really unfortunate. Uh, and so that must mean that there's absolutely, uh, if you're going to talk about David, absolutely no use of the penitential psalms, a real use of the penitential psalms, right? Against you, you only have I sinned and none what is evil in your sight. Uh, Psalm 51, uh, Psalm 130, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is what? Forgiveness. 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 The evangelical doesn't even think about this, that what is it that led David to write, say, Psalm 53? It was Nathan confronting him in his sin, absolving him of his sin. Precisely. The evangelical does not need a Nathan. It doesn't need the forgiveness of sin. doesn't need a prophet coming to him saying, I absolve you of all of your sin. Because again, the forgiveness of my sins took place when I accepted Jesus into my heart. Mm-hmm. Or to see a man up in front, you know, in a dress, absolving you. Who has the pluck to do that? Exactly. What's he arrogating to himself? Exactly. Going back to this, Pastor Platt, he asked this question, where should we have the Lord's Supper? Speaks about the church. He answers that. Then he says, when should we have the Lord's Supper? Interestingly enough, he really does look at the verses that talk about how you are supposed to do it in a regular way. Do it often. He talks about how he confesses and repents by saying, we're going to do this more around here. I don't know exactly how we're going to do it more, but we're we are going we've not observed the Lord's Supper often enough. Well, that's highly commendable. I, I agree. Taking, taking the apostle God's word at face value there uh, and understanding that often means often. So then he moves to how should we understand the Lord's Supper? And then, I mean, this is where we're starting to get into the the differences. He first starts talking about abuses of Rome. For there is a change of substance that results in salvation. Yeah, you want to talk, you want to pause on transubstantiation? Because I think the evangelicals have a legitimate beef with Rome on this question. And so so maybe this is part of the baby with the bathwater business. Okay. Now, as much as the as as much as Zwingli and company wanted to bring this philosophical purging of doctrine into the into the church. Rome had a philosophical understanding of what was happening in the sacrament of the altar. And that's where the transubstantiation business comes along. They said that a thing can only be one thing. So a substance can only be one substance. You cannot have fire that is also water. You can't have a hydrogen atom that is also an iron atom. Okay, and, and I mean, this is clearly observed in the mm-hmm. natural world, mm-hmm. we all know about it. What they, what they maintained on the basis of philosophy was that if you're calling this host that you're holding in your hand the body of Christ, it can't also be bread, just like iron can't also be hydrogen, fire can't also be water. And this makes perfect sense. And yet, 
it just runs directly contrary to the words of Scripture. Right. So what they did is they approached this problem with another philosophical answer. And the philosophical answer is, uh, well, it's really a linguistic answer, that when Jesus says is, he actually means represents. So when he says, this is my body, he, he, what we should hear him saying is, this, this represents my body. Because, because what we can clearly see is that Jesus has bread in his hand. Well, they're committing the same error as the Church of Rome is. They're shoehorning the Word of God into a philosophic framework that is, is utterly dependent on, on philosophy and not the clear Word of God. Now, the Lutheran answer to this question is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And he's already talked about this in this sermon. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16 and 17. The cup of blessing that we bless... Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Right. So both elements at the exact same time. At the time. exact same time. And the next verse, the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Again, both elements at the same time. Uh, yeah. How can this be? We don't know. Exactly. And see, here's where the evangelical messes up. The idea here is the ministerial use of reason versus the magisterial use of reason. And that when it comes to revelation, our reason must submit itself. Evangelical, he does this so many times. And we've already, you know, six-day creation, virgin birth, uh, Jonah. And so reason goes under the revelation. But when it comes to this right here, reason gets elevated above the clear revelation of Scripture. And we say, that can't be. Because they detest a God with dirty fingernails. And they prefer a God that they can find within themselves or, quote-unquote, spiritually. Which is scary. It is. So you said, you know, early on, there was a philosophic explanation given. Which, you know, here's the deal. And you're are you referring to Thomas Aquinas? Aquinas, right. That sort of scholastic theology, yeah. Okay. So this is Aristotelianism. Okay. Platonism doesn't have the same exact problem as, as Aristotle. Does. It's okay for somebody to have an opinion about how this happens. Even though it's a mystery, we accept it by faith. It was okay for Aquinas to have this opinion about how this mystery takes place. Wasn't the problem when Rome then elevated it to dogma and then anathematized anybody who did not believe what Thomas Aquinas said? Yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I, I guess we can, we're free to speculate where Scripture doesn't speak. And there's a recognition of this in Scripture, so I, or in Lutheran theology. So a, a really good example of this is what happens to the soul at death. Um, is there a soul sleep? Or is there an immediate translation of the soul to loving, adoring, obedient worship of God in heaven? This is the big question. Scripture doesn't answer it. And Lutherans are fine with a person who speculates one way or the other, as long as that speculation doesn't run them into a direct contradiction of God's word. Okay, so, so in a sense, open question. Now, you could look at the whole question of how this can be in the sacrament of the altar, how, how the body can be bread and how the bread can be body and so on and so forth. You could look at this as, as a place sort of ripe for speculation. And transubstantiation is one of those places that is it would be a speculation on the topic. The problem from the Lutheran perspective uh, and from the scriptural perspective is that their speculation takes them headlong into a confession that directly contradicts what Scripture says. 
the bread that we bless, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The cup that we drink, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Body and bread go are simultaneously present. Blood and wine are simultaneously present. That is the solution. That's the only scriptural solution to the problem of transubstantiation. It was recognized clearly as a major problem, a major unscriptural problem at the time of the Reformation. The answer that the contemporary evangelicals give to the problem of transubstantiation is actually committing the same oh, yeah. philosophical error right, that right. transubstantiation does. It's, it's a sad, sort of fascinating thing to observe that on this question, evangelicals and Catholics stand closer united either does with Lutherans. Yeah, what's fascinating about it is the one that they absolutely sh- stay away from, somehow or another, they, they actually embrace. Yeah. They don't even realize it, but they're embracing the exact same thing. The exact same and, error. They how can, they how can, can they can how can that not be seen and understood by them? Well, because it's a purging. Uh, let's go back to where we started. Uh, you had said, you know, reaction over reaction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Isn't it enough in the mind of somebody who opposes one thing to assert the opposite of it, that therein lies the victory in, in, in their mind. And so no matter how you got there, it doesn't matter if your account makes sense to you and it's an assertion of the opposite of what the other party is saying, all well and good, mm-hmm. you won, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I think that's what's going on. That must be what's going on. And, and all the while, the original evangelical impulse, the one that emerged in Wittenberg, Germany in the, in the 16th century, was to answer these problems not on the basis of philosophy, but on the basis of the clear word of God. And here we have the clear word of God. Right. Well, let's pick it up here because he, he talks about transubstantiation. You see it at the bottom of the page, underlined. There is a change of substance where the bread and wine actually become the body and blood of Christ. This is one of the reasons, primary reasons, why for centuries people, parishioners, so to speak, did not even participate in drinking from the cup, because only the priests would drink from the cup, because if the cup were to spill, the wine were to spill, it would be spilling the blood of Christ, and it was too great a risk. So, for many years, and that's why, because there's a change of substance here, so that Christ is physically present in the elements. Now, Lutheran has no problem with accepting that Christ is physically present in the elements. But he has a problem saying there's a change of substance. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And this is where this is where he comes in with the next bit. Now, follow here, because this is where we need to realize this is bigger than just a theological discussion of a piece of bread or a cup of wine. This has huge ramifications for understanding the gospel and salvation. Because... If Christ is physically present in the bread and the wine, then to receive communion is to receive Christ. It's an exact quote from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. To receive communion is to receive Christ. Now, communion has ramifications for our understanding of salvation. I want to quote directly here from Catechism of the Catholic Church. By consecration, the transubstantiation of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ is brought about. Under the consecrated species of bread and wine, listen to this, Christ Himself, living and glorious, is present in a true, real, 
and substantial manner. His body and His blood with His soul and His divinity. Which is why, I mentioned this a second ago, to receive communion is to receive Christ Himself who has offered Himself for us. Now, He is totally bum-fuzzled by that. I mean, that is like... But He's just spoken truth. And the Catholic Catechism has spoken truth. Exactly. Right. That Jesus has got to stay in heaven. He's got to be in heaven, doesn't he? Clean. Yeah, yeah. I, I always like to talk about Al Gore's love box. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> oh, do you, do you remember? Uh, he was going to sequester certain funds, uh, I don't know, for climate change or something, and put it up in a love box. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where Jesus, that's where Jesus is, is in Al Gore's log box. God, God, God has him up, up at his right hand in a love box, and he can't be anywhere else. It just it just absolutely blows me away. And again, I don't know if it's magisterial use of reason. I don't know if it's romophobia. I you know I just can't seem to put my finger on it. I guess it goes back to the fact that this is what we've always believed, and we just can't come off of that. But I would say, Pastor Bros, and this is what is exciting: there are so many people who are investigating this, the people who are even listening to this podcast. There are people who are listening, they're they're thinking through these things, they're studying the scriptures, they're seeing that none of this, uh, this evangelical, sacramentarian, stay away from the sacraments, they're seeing that it's not true, that God all this time has had these wonderful gifts available for them. And to the person who is in despair, this is gospel, as it is. <laughs> it is the most beautiful thing ever. And, and, and you know, the thing is that, that we aren't making this up. Um, and hopefully what people have heard is that this is uh, straight out of the Scriptures and that you have to do mental gymnastics to deny what the Scriptures say about these very things. Uh, this is our comfort in uh, life and death. Amen. I want to continue on with Pastor Platt. Now, communion has ramifications for our understanding of salvation. I want to quote directly here from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. By consecration, the transubstantiation of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ is brought about. That is not the Lutheran perspective at all. Or scriptural. Or scriptural. Right. Right. Under the consecrated species of bread and wine, listen to this. This is what the pastor says. Listen to this. Christ himself, living and glorious, is present in a true, real, and substantial manner. His body and his blood, with his soul and his divinity, which is why to receive communion is to receive Christ himself, or who has offered himself for us. This is absolutely true. That's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. So the Catholics, when they once they get past the transubstantiation and the sacrifice of the Mass, uh, those two things, um, they they know what they handle, bread and wine. If they were to ask the priest, what are you putting into my hands? He would say, this is the body of Christ. If a Lutheran said to their pastor, what are you putting into my hands or in my mouth? Well, we say it for every person. This is the true body of Christ. Exactly. He is still blown away. Where I... I don't know if he's blown away, but he's certainly trying to communicate to his audience, that congregation, uh, which, by the way, uh, there's 2,000. He said that there was 2,000 people there in this congregation wow. hearing this. So this, again, this is a you know large evangelical church. So here's what happens. He's still quoting from the Catholics. When we take communion, communion with the body and blood of Christ, listen to this, increases one's union with the Lord 
forgives his venial sins and preserves him from grave sins. Let me read that one more time. I mean, he's, he's blown away by this. I want to quote directly here from Catechism of the Catholic Church. By consecration, the transubstantiation of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ is brought about. Under the consecrated species of bread and wine, listen to this, Christ Himself, living and glorious, is present in a true, real, and substantial manner. His body and His blood with His soul and His divinity. Which is why, I mentioned this a second ago, to receive communion is to receive Christ Himself who has offered Himself for us. Communion with the body and blood of Christ, listen to this, increases one's union with the Lord, forgives his venial sins, and preserves him from grave sin. It's unbelievable to be um, taken aback by that, isn't it? Exactly. Right? Even though it's which the is, exact words of Christ. Which is poured out for you for the remission of, of all of your sins. Yeah. So again, Pastor Platt says, take the meal, receive Christ, and obtain forgiveness. There is forgiveness that is obtained in the receiving of Christ in communion, which is why, as a sacrifice, the Eucharist is offered in reparation for the sins of the living and the dead to obtain spiritual and temporal benefits from God. There's a huge problem with the whole business of the Catholic uh, idea of the sacrifice of the Mass. Um, and that's, that's completely uh, contrary to Scripture. Christ uh, rendered a once-and-for-all sacrifice for sins. However, the, the Catholics, in what they've put together, they've talked about the forgiveness of sins. So we're going to throw the whole thing out. Baby with the bathwater. with the bathwater. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, come up with our own schema of how this works. But again, he, here's the rubbing stone. The rubbing stone always has to be the, the very Word of God. And when Christ says, this is for you for the forgiveness of your sins, guess what? It's for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And when he says, this is my body, which is given for you, guess what? It is his body given for you. What pluck must we have to have to argue with the very words of God himself? But was it not Martin Luther who was making that exact same point to Zwingli at the Marlborough Colloquy? And he said something to the degree of, look, if the Lord told me to eat horse dung for the forgiveness of my sins. I would eat it. And who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? And Zwingli came back and said, oh, please don't be so you know, crude or crass or elementary or, or some juvenile, he, right, something like that. Right, exactly. Isn't this the point, though? This is Zwingli and, his re and, and the Reformation of Manners. And Luther doesn't care if his God has dirty fingernails mm. or is a God twinkle, mm -hmm. as long as he's the God given to him in Scripture. This is the only place that he can anchor his certainty. Right. It's the only place... Look, evangelicals recognize this, the primacy of the Word of God. Absolutely. This is where they wish to anchor their certainty. A absolutely. And here, what they do is they undermine the very basis of their certainty by saying, well, God, God doesn't have it right here exactly, and he doesn't have it right here. Uh, and, and why? Uh, is it because it smacks of Rome? Maybe it is. Sad. It, it is sad. Now, we're, we're going to close this out. I want to bring you to the next page, though. And so in the Lord's Supper, what we're doing is we're not receiving Christ. We're not receiving grace that's being infused into us. We're celebrating grace that has radically transformed us. This whole business of, of, of infused grace, and it, maybe we should pause and talk about that so people understand that. 
This is a Catholic theory uh, mm-hmm. developed in the Middle Ages that I like to picture it this way. A human body is, as it were, this empty vessel. And to get to heaven, you got to have enough grace. What God does, you've got a lid on top of your head. Mm-hmm. He opens the lid, mm-hmm. and in baptism, he pours some grace in there. Mm-hmm. So that's infused grace. It's poured in grace. Then it's your responsibility to add to that infusion through good works. Uh, when you fall short and commit venial sins, mm-hmm. um, you go to the sacrament of the altar, mm-hmm. and God pours more grace mm-hmm. in. And finally, by the time you die, you want you want your lid to be popping off because there's so much grace in it so that you can get into heaven. Okay. So these okay. are the whole sacrament, the seven sacerdotal duties, all of that through one's yeah. life. Correct. That are right. always available to infuse more grace into you. Even when you're dying, we can have last rites and get a little bit more grace in there. Yeah, and you don't want to spring a leak. You know, you don't want to have a, a major sin that's going to cause all sorts of grace to leak out. Okay. You know, and so... It'd be, a me- it'd be very messy. It could be, a, it could yeah, be all uh, over the floor. Right, exactly. You don't want that. He is right in saying that infused grace is an incorrect notion. We agree. Scripture doesn't teach about grace as being this infusion that you have to have enough to get to heaven. Grace is God's undeserved favor toward us in Christ. But receiving Christ in the Lord's Supper, we're going to throw that out too? Right. But also to say that we're not receiving grace in the, in, in the, in the Lord's Supper. That, that, that is one to say that when God comes to you and says, this is for you for the forgiveness of sins, that this is not God's undeserved favor toward you? Totally. It is. Is there grace in the sacrament of the altar? Absolutely. Is it given to you? Absolutely. Is it infused? No. There's no. That's just a theory, and it's an anti-scriptural theory. But is if grace is God's undeserved favor toward you, then certainly the sacrament of the altar brings grace to you. Well, and you preached the sermon just a couple weeks ago about how whenever Jesus shows up, this is what he's bringing: salvation. He's bringing forgiveness. This is who he is. So if he's showing up at church, which he says, I promise to be there if two or three are gathered, then this is what he's offering. Right, right, right. Not an instruction book on a holier life. Although, you know, I uh, should be quick to note that, that a Christian does owe God a holy life. We're not saying that. We're not antinomians. We're not against God's law. The Christian does owe God a holy life and his neighbor a holy life. But Jesus doesn't show up to give us moral instruction. All right, so let's move on to this next paragraph uh, because this is what I I think you're just going to come out of your skin when you read this. So in the Lord's Supper, what we're doing is we're not receiving Christ. We're not receiving grace that's being infused into us. And so what we've just talked about is the fact that, yeah, you know, there is no grace being infused, but that doesn't mean there's not being grace being given and being offered. And we've obviously said, yeah, well, if he says this is my body and this is my blood, you, you are receiving Christ. And so the problem is for the evangelical, when we say receiving Christ, see, the Lutheran hears it through his mouth. Right. The evangelical receives Christ into, through, his, heart. into his heart. Right, right. So that's the, there's only one time you receive Christ. Exactly. Right. And that's many the, times. Well, and that's the rear view mirror right. factor, right? Okay, so notice this. He says, we are celebrating grace that has radically transformed us. This is a biblical understanding, a symbolic meal that reflects salvation. There is no indication in Scripture 
whether it's in the Gospels in John 6 or in the letters here, that his body and his blood are physically present. Even in the context of Luke 22, which we read a moment, moment ago, when he says, this is my body and this is my blood, that word used many times in the New Testament is translated represents. This represents my body, represents my blood. No indication in Scripture, whether it's in the Gospels and John 6 and the letters here, that his body and his blood are physically present. Even in the context of Luke 22, which we read a moment ago. When he says, this is my body, this is my blood. That, that word used many times in the New Testament. Translated, represents. This represents my body, represents my blood. I cannot <laughs> even... Uh, Wrap my head around that. I know. See, this is why this podcast is developed. It's to take all this evangelical schlock and put it before you so that you can respond. <laughs> 2,000 people I, I, just heard him say that, and who knows how many online. I'm flabbergasted, uh, actually, and saddened um, that somebody could take such clear words of Scripture and turn them into the opposite of what they say. The clear opposite. It's just, it's just absolutely mind blowing. Astonishing. But you got to keep that. You got to keep that God clean. No dirt under His fingernails. He can't be coming to you any other way than spiritually. So we're gonna we're gonna change the very words. I, I spoke earlier about how respected Pastor Platt is. You know, he's a John MacArthur esque. He's in that camp. But then to say, I mean, this is like Greek one hundred one. Exactly. Yeah, you know, let's let's back up and talk a little bit about this. You know, in in Greek, the verb for be is superfluous. For example, um, the best way to say, so my name is John. Uh, if I wanted to say I am John, in Greek, the best way to say that, the most sort of efficient way to say that, is I John, and everybody would know what I was saying. I would say Ego Ioannis. Uh, I don't have to see, say, egoimi, Ioannis, I don't have to use the verb for be. So when the verb for be, some form of is, shows up, it means something. There's no obligation to use it. Now, Jesus, here, in every one of the recordings of the words of institution, always uses the verb, the be verb, okay? So, tu ta esti ta somamu, this is my body. And what you need to do as you read that in English to get the full force of what Jesus is saying, put it in italics or in capital letters. This is my body. This is my blood. It's emphatic. But why in the world is, he, is, is it emphatic? Why in the world is he drawing attention to that word? If what he actually means to say is this represents my body, this represents my blood, it, it, it befuddles the mind. We would never ever speak this way. We, we know this. This is common human parlance. Unless we were lying. If we were in the courtroom stand, I did not kill that woman. Well, if I'm lying, I'm going to draw, I'm going to, I'm going to emphasize this. Dare we say that the Lord Jesus hmm. in his last will and testament was lying by using the word esteem. Hulk est corpus meum. This is my body. Which were the words of scripture are the words of Scripture. So for them, uh, you know, how, how he's landed here is just... Um, yeah, I was shocked. Yeah. Because, you know, I mean, as we pointed out, at, at 10 pages, 
This is 12 font. I mean, this is an hour sermon. He goes into depth and so many other things. And then to throw that in, it's like he's just towing the party line. And the argumentation getting there was so poor. It's appealing, but poor. But when notice, speaking of the argumentation. The straw man. The straw man is, is the Church of Rome. And you attack the words of Scripture by attacking the Church of Rome, which is unfortunate. That's it. That is. And I'll just notice so of this next paragraph. Uh, and this is the common refutation. When I was struggling through the Lord's Supper, and I spent months and months, it's, it's sad that it took me that long, but I had to, like, unlearn what I had learned. And so, it, for me, it took months. And once I did that and started to actually accept the words of Scripture and believe them, magisterial reason gets put in its proper place uh, to the ministerial, all, all of that, uh, this was a common refutation that I heard when I was talking to even elders at my evangelical church. And this is what Pastor Platt says. Same way, Jesus would use pictures. I'm the door, I'm the vine, I'm the light. It's a representation of a much deeper reality, a glorious reality. And he's saying this, this is my body, when his body is right there in front of him. This is my blood, when his blood is in his veins. In other words, Jesus himself is, is sitting there. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. So he's saying, this is yeah. my body when his blood is in his veins. <laughs> or this is my blood yeah. when his blood is in his veins. There's no indication in Scripture that in order to obtain the benefits of Christ, that we need to eat and drink of something that physically is transformed into his body and blood, where he is in the language that's used, sacrificed over and over and over again. I hope everybody listening to this understands that this is a straw man argument. Yeah, it's setting up something that is, um, it, it's a, uh, a distraction away from the truth. Right. It's, it's like they're fooled because they hear this fallacy they are fooled into rejecting the Lord's gifts. Correct. And his word. Sadly. Picture is there's a sacrifice that is once for all. And in the Lord's Supper, we celebrate that sacrifice. And the bread represents a body. The cup represents blood. Symbolic meal that reflects salvation. What we are doing today in the Lord's Supper is not being done to earn salvation. To which we would agree with 100%. that. 100%. It's being done to celebrate salvation. That's what we're seeing in Scripture. And, and uh, that last uh, statement, it's being done to celebrate salvation, is no doubt part of what happens in the sacrament. We, we do. Uh, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth the Lord's, or the Lord's death until he comes again. That is celebrating salvation. But Paul doesn't say do this in order to celebrate the, the Lord's salvation. Paul says do this for the forgiveness of sins. This is the goal of the sacrament of the altar, the forgiveness of sins. And he does this predicated upon the fact that the thing that you eat and the thing that you drink is his body and blood. Amen. You've been listening to the Plucked Chicken Podcast with your hosts, Pastors John Bruss and Devin Kearns. To discover more, go to thepluckedchicken.com or stjohnlcmstopeka.org.